Good morning, church. And how do you respond to that? Good morning. I've always heard about New Mexico being a warm and friendly and exciting and dynamic and beautiful place. As a matter of fact, uh, my wife has just always been fascinated by the desert southwest, especially uh, New Mexico. She uh, has had this bucket list of things to do, which includes the hot air balloon fair festival. Is that what you call it, the hot air balloon festival? How many of you have been to that? Okay, well, yeah, I guess everybody's been to that. I've never been to that. You see, I I have a little fear of of heights, and, uh, you know, just being in that flying tube getting out here is about all I can do to uh, uh, survive uh, uh, those heights and scary things. My wife and daughter just jumped out of an airplane last week, a perfectly good airplane, a working airplane. They jumped out of it for my daughter's 18th birthday. I think we've got a picture, and I'll show you my family just so we can get to know one another uh, this morning. Do, do you all have a picture to show? There we go. So my wife, who just graduated from Southeastern uh, Baptist Seminary with her master's degree, is pictured there. My daughter, those are the two that jumped out of the perfectly good airplane, which I can assure you I will never do. Um, I have more sense than that. The Lord uh, gave birth to me on the earth, and I plan on staying there. Um, my son, who is in the uh, kind of puffy black jacket there, John, he's 13 years of age. He was very excited about uh, me coming to New Mexico, and he asked if I would come home glowing. <laughs> now, I think that was in reference to his study of World War II this last year and the nuclear blast in Los Alamos, I believe it is. And so he, what it wasn't? White Sands, there you go. And uh, so he was really fascinated. And my seven-year-old, Liam, the one up front smiling in the black checkered shirt, he said, no, John, but he is going to see an alien. <laughs> so, so my family is thrilled that I am here today, and I am as well. I have been working in our new ministry, having pastored for the last 25 years, serving as a senior pastor, planning a church, revitalizing a church and then serving one of our large Southern Baptist churches as senior pastor, uh, we started a ministry to help churches recover their mission. And today we live in Peachtree City, Georgia, which is uh, the Atlanta airport area. And that allows me to travel literally across Western Europe, working with churches there as well as across uh, the United States, working with churches. So thank you for giving me the privilege of being with you. You know, like Paul said to the Roman church, When he said, your faith is being reported all over the world, um, Hoffmantown's faith and mission and ministry has certainly been reported all over the world. I know several of your past pastors and many staff members who serve in the kingdom of God all across the world today who have come out of your church. And uh, what they say about you and their gratitude for you is always encouraging and, and truly As Paul said, I thank my God that your faith is being reported around the world. Now, understand, that's not for your pride, prideful consumption. That is just a product of the church hearing and responding to the Word of God and being obedient and faithful as the Spirit of God moves. Now, I will tell you that we live in a day and a time where many, if not most, churches are wrestling with that. 
And one of the things that I'm talking with your interim pastor about, uh, Dr. Steve Dighton, who is just a wonderful friend and I know a rich blessing for you, is about the importance of a church being on God's mission and their motives being right for doing the work that God has called them to do. And that's really what I want to talk to you about today, that during this time of transition for you, and I know Steve is leading you capably through that transition, but, but transitions are good and transitions are important because transitions help you to refocus on the Lord, to reclaim His mission, to recover some things spiritually that God desires for you next in your journey of faith and obedience for that is what the church is always to be about if you can't point to places where you are being faithful to God's mission and and points in places where God is calling you to specific obedience not only individually but as a congregation then you can be assured that you are not on God's mission actively pursuing his glory in your church Paul talks a lot about this within the Bible. Some churches in troubling times, struggling with that mission, like the church at Corinth. Other churches, like the one we'll look at today, the church in Ephesus, a church that desired to pursue the glory of God. And what we find the Apostle Paul doing with them is helping them as he has left, a pastor has come, the, the, the transition has occurred of apostolic ministry to pastoral ministry, and now he is encouraging them for the glory of God to fulfill the mission that God has given to them as a church. Can you imagine receiving the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesian church? Can you imagine just knowing what's in the letter, and I know many, if not most of you, know the contents of the letter to the Ephesian church. My, my favorite letter of all the epistles, powerful, profound, lofty, ambitious, focused, high callings, great responsibilities. Can you imagine reading that for the first time? Can, can you imagine that letter being read in a Sunday morning worship service as the Apostle Paul wanted to communicate back to the church. Can you imagine what that would be like? This means yes, this means no. Can you imagine what that would be like? You, you can imagine how they may have reflected upon their own spiritual condition. You can imagine how they remembered the purposes for which God had called them. You can imagine that they reconsidered their own salvation and that moment of conversion in their own life, how they went back to those things and probably had some pinch points where some pain occurred where they knew they weren't living up to the high calling of God. You know, times of transition do give us just such a thing. It gives us opportunity to reflect, and a reflection that is made in the presence of the Lord can always be such a renewing and encouraging thing. As I said earlier, I work with churches all across Western Europe and all across North America, about 400 churches actively right now going through our refocus process, and about uh, two or 3,000 beyond that that are laying the groundwork for this process of spiritual renewal as they recover uh, their mission and ministry as a congregation. 
And working with the churches of Western Europe, primarily in France and Germany, I can assure you that the last 50 years, there has been a loss of focus and mission for the church in Europe. Today, in many of those communities that historically were places of the Reformation, now less than 1% evangelical Christian. Can you imagine that? Doesn't that break your heart to think that the land of the Reformation is today one of the least religious places in the world, one of the least evangelized places in the entire globe. There, there are Islamic countries that have more evangelical Christians than places like France and Germany. It's staggering to step back and give consideration to this long 50-year decline. But unfortunately, what we're watching in America today is that something similar is beginning to happen here. I've pastored in a community that was less than 1% evangelical Christian in South Florida. Uh, other religions, other faith backgrounds, other faith traditions. And I can tell you that the gospel of Jesus Christ can shine very brightly in those places, but only if the people of God pursue God with a full and whole heart and only if the glory of the Lord is restored to his church. Now that would have been a good place to say amen. <laughs> this is a participatory event, okay? This is not one-way communication. I was preaching in an African-American church in the inner city of Dallas, and I paused just long enough to take a breath. I mean, they were so into it, I was preaching myself to death, quite honestly. And I just needed a break to, 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 to breathe in a, a full breath in my lungs. And, and a beautiful woman on the front row, as I paused for just a moment, stood up with her handkerchief and said, Help him, Lord! You may already be saying, help him, Lord, and, and we haven't even gotten to the scripture yet, but my hope is that we will engage, for you see, that's what God wants the church body experience to be, is that the living God wants to be in this place today. He wants his church to be alive. He wants the word of God to be powerful and effective, and oftentimes, the only thing that he's waiting for is for our full engagement with him. You see, so often we sit back on the pews and we wait for somebody in the pulpit to impress us. I can't impress you today. There's nothing I can say that will impress you that will change you. The choir, the orchestra, David, your pastors who've all been on this platform, your elders, there's nothing we can do. It is the work of the power of God in the lives of his people. That's when the church comes alive. Today in America, over 85% of churches are plateaued or declining. Every week in America, 70 churches close their doors never to reopen again. Think about that. The first week of January, 70. The second week, 140. The third week, 210. 280. 350. I'm sure you're impressed that a guy from Georgia can count, but... You get the idea that there is a major crisis that is happening. Our president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Ronnie Floyd, said two weeks ago that it's a crisis of culture in our congregations. And can I tell you what that culture issue is? 
It is that we have lost the vision of God's glory in his church. Do you know who the best church revitalizer was in the Bible? It was Jesus. A few decades after the resurrection, there were seven churches in this one particular region in western Turkey. We know them as the seven churches of Revelation. We think the primary message today in America about those seven churches is one of prophecy. And there'll be people more interested in prophecy about the return of the Lord because they don't want to have to physically face death themselves than they are concerned about the primary message of that passage, which is about every church keeping and retaining the mission of God as the primary purpose for the work in the church. See how we've lost our glory? And just like he said, in every one of those churches... He wanted the lampstand to burn brightly. Five of those churches were corrected. Two of them didn't have something to be corrected about, but he still redirected them and said, there's got to be something new in the church today that leads you in the next leg of the journey of faith, in the next leg of obedience as God's people follow God's will for the body. What is it that's next for Hoffmantown? See, Jesus was very clear about the mission of the church. We know the Great Commission generally from Matthew chapter 28. He talks to us about a great claim. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Then he gives the Great Commission. Therefore, go. As you are going, make disciples. There's the command. And then he says, there's a great comfort. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. But you know, it's not just Matthew where the Great Commission is listed. Mark gives us the Great Commission. Luke gives us the Great Commission. John recounts the Great Commission. All four of the Gospels end with the Great Commission. It is not that Christ has been unclear about the mission of the church. It is not that the Bible doesn't clearly give us our commands. As a matter of fact, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 helps us to understand the church knew exactly what the mission was. But here was the problem. The problem was they were easily distracted. They were easily distracted from the primary mission. You see, they were concerned about who was going to be in control of the church. Uh huh. Who's, who's going to have the purse strings? Who's going to have the authority? Who's going to have control over the church? Who, who's going to administrate the church? You see, when we're down to those sorts of issues, we've lost completely God's vision for the mission to be accomplished. See, the primary mission is about making disciples, and unless we're spending more time and more effort making disciples, then we are distracted from the mission of God. Now here's the challenge today is most people who have entered into the church today have never actually been discipled themselves. Can I tell you, I was one of those young people who grew up in a church and was never discipled until I experienced a call to ministry and then an associate pastor pulled me aside and started discipling me. In the Word, 
hearing the word, being transformed by the word, washed in the word. See, the power of God's word to transform a life. Teaching them everything that I have commanded. That's the next phrase in the Great Commission, isn't it? See, Christ has been very clear about the mission of the church. But you see, the church, as John Stott once said it to me, is in constant need of renewal. Are you in need of renewal? Is this church in need of renewal? Boy, there is a God who loves to make all things new. You know, church is hard, isn't it? Church really is a challenging thing. I mean, I am a sinful, imperfect being. You are a sinful, imperfect being. Don't nudge your husband or your wife and say, see, I told you so. (laughs) We live in a sinful, imperfect world. I heard a story about a man who lived most of his adult life shipwrecked on a desert island. Did you hear this story? Spent almost all of his adult life shipwrecked on an isolated, deserted island. For years he had hoped that a ship would come by and he could be rescued. No rescue came for decades. Finally a ship comes by. He sees it. He flags them down. The captain rows a boat ashore with the rescue crew. And, and, and the man rejoices that he's finally rescued. But the captain of the ship is just amazed when he hears the story of 30 years of survival on a desert island. He said, how did you do it? Show me around. What is all this stuff? And he showed him a pier where he caught his fish. He showed him a little hut where, where he slept and a bed where he rested. And he said, you made all this by your hands? Yes, by my hands. He showed him a kitchen where, where he actually cooked his food. He even showed him a church that he worshipped in to remain inspired on, on a weekly basis. But there was one building that the man who was shipwrecked never described. And the captain, curious about it, said, hey, what's that building over there? And the man said, I don't want to talk about it. He said, no, no, tell me what that is over there. And the man said, well, that's the church I used to belong to. (laughs) Now, can you see the problem? Can I tell you the problem? The problem's me. And if you can't sit there and say the problem's you, then you've got a worse problem than just the problem. It's that you're denying what the Bible says about you. And denying who and what you are. And denying the process of transformation that God uses through the power of the gospel daily to transform us. I every day wake up a sinner in need of the redemptive power of God. And the church said? And if you don't have that redemptive power at work within you every single day, can I tell you what you fall back into? Your fleshly patterns. And when you live in your fleshly patterns, guess what you bring to the church with you? Your fleshly patterns. And when the fleshly patterns are what leads a church, the glory of the Lord cannot fall. But understand this, no matter how much disrepair the church has fallen into, no matter how discouraged you may become, 
no matter how disenfranchised people may be, understand this. Understand that God still loves his church. Understand this. God is still building his church. He is still at work. He still desires to renew and reform and transform his church. And this is where we turn this morning as we take our Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Would you take your Bible, turn it on. Let me see that holy glow on even you senior adults who've gotten into this uh, technological thing. For those of you who still turn pages, let me hear those pages turn. Ephesians chapter 3. While you turn there, let me remind you, queen of the epistles, lofty thoughts... Chapter 1 tells us about the spiritual blessings we have in Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 tells us about the spiritual change that happens when we're born again. Chapters 3 and 4 tell us about this spiritual body, the body of Christ. Chapter 5 tells us about the spiritual relationships that we're supposed to enjoy in the church and in our family and through work. And chapter 6 tells us about the spiritual battle and why it's so hard because Satan wants to destroy anything that God is building. Now look with me at just two verses, chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. I'm reading from the New American Standard. It says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church... And in Christ Jesus to all generations. Now just look back at the five-fold superlative statement. Far, more, abundantly, beyond all. More than you can sit in the pew today and think God for His glory wants to do in this church. And if you've forgotten that, then you don't understand the power of the glory of God. You don't know what it is to have the lampstand begin to burn brightly. You've fallen into the trap of thinking that that the light's just going to be diminished. But no, God wants His glory to burn brightly. Now, this is the apex of chapters 3 and 4. And what I want to do is just spend whatever time we have left looking at as many of the five insights that Paul gives about how the church can glorify God that we can. So I want to look at five insights if we have time for them. We'll stop wherever we run out of time. But there are five insights. You have them hopefully on the screen that will pop up behind you. And I hope that what you will remember is that this thing called the church is a holy and sacred work that God is fulfilling His eternal purposes that He has, let me put it in the lofty theological language for you theologians in the room, a grand eschatological vision of what beautiful work, what eternal work God desires to do in His church. Number one, look back to verse 1 through 13 and understand that God 
has made the church his priority. And you need to make the church your priority. Think about all your priorities in life. God wants the church to be your priority. Now let's dig deeply here. We'll we'll dig deepest at this point. So bear with me through a little bit of technical Bible study for those of you who maybe aren't living at that level. Maybe you're new to the faith. Maybe you've not studied the church closely or carefully. But here is some of the richest language in the Bible about the church. Go down to verse 8 and just pick up and notice what Paul says. To me, the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is, here's the first key word, the administration, here's the second key word, of the mystery which for ages past has been hidden in God who created all things. Verse 10, so that the manifold, here's the third word, wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, there are really four ideas, three mentioned in words and One mentioned in a phrase, he talks to us about these four things. The mystery revealed, the plan God designed, God's eternal wisdom on display, and his will ultimately being accomplished. And he says, that's what God is doing through the church. Now I can promise you this. If you're not thinking of the church in that kind of way, you will live far below God's desired experience for you when it comes to life in the church. Just look at each one of these for a moment. It's first of all the mystery revealed. Does anybody binge watch TV? Do you ever binge watch? Some of you sports fanatic guys, you may binge watch one ball game after another and your, your wife goes, how can you watch sport, sporting event after sporting event, game after game? And then Sunday night comes and your wife's watched 13 episodes of Downton Abbey. Right? Yeah. Anglophile in the room. No worries, I'm a lover of things in Britain as well. Can I tell you the story we ought to be consumed with? W.A. Criswell at First Baptist Dallas called it the scarlet thread through the Bible. The story of redemptive history across all time and all places where God was seeking to build a family for himself. And verse 3 says, uses the word mystery three times in this chapter. In in verse 3 he says, it previously was unknown but now God has made this story known. The story he's made known, verses 4 through 6, is the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that God, here's the language, was reconciling people who were alienated from him, and now they can be in the family. Not only were they outside of the family, but Ephesians 2 tells us that we were actually enemies with God, but now we've not only no longer relinquished the enemy status, 
But now we are accepted into the family and given a place like Mephibosheth at David's table. Not the expected story, but God in his grace and his love has the power to do just that. And then he goes on. And finally in verse 6, the most unthinkable thing happens. He says, we are fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers... Sharing the same blessing, the same body, the same promises. He's talking about people who it was thought would be irreconcilable are now being reconciled by the power of God. What a beautiful and incredible thing to think that this mystery revealed, what was previously unknown, now has been made known, and that this mystery made known is the power of Jesus saving grace. And if you've been saved by that grace... And if you're living by that grace, it's all you can do today to sit there in that seat when that idea is mentioned. And if your heart doesn't sing that song, you're either not saved or you have fallen back into a backslidden worldly condition where you are not living on God's mission and in the kind of relationship that God desires. But here's the good news. If your heart is not there, there is a loving Father that is waiting and wanting for that spiritual awakening to occur in your life. His mercies are new every morning. And today His mercies call out to you that this mystery of the gospel is as powerful as it has always been. Look at the second word. Verse 9, the plan to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery. Now, when I say administration, half the congregation goes to sleep. You think of a CPA in a, you know, cubicle with a 10 key punching out, you know, a 1099, right? How exciting does that sound, right? Administration. Well, I'm glad those people have the gift of administration. I have the gift of administration. I was an accountant, worked for Deloitte & Touche, worked for Ernst & Young, and have that in my background. Can I tell you, there's a whole lot more here. And all the accountants in the room said? (laughs) A lot of accountants in the room, right? God help you. You're going to really need the Holy Spirit to move. I can say that as an accountant, right? (laughs) Notice what he says. The plan. He wants to make known the administration. Literally, the word administration says that there was a plan. And and the plan needs to be brought to light. We need to discover the plan. We need the lights to shine on what God's plan needs to be. And then it can direct our path. God can guide us down the path that he desires. I'd already decided to say this on Sunday morning, and then my wife affirmed it. This week, she said it to me again. She probably hasn't said it in a year or more to me, but she was telling our children that when we met, she loved me when she discovered that I was able to make a plan and decide and commit to something. She, she would be indecisive about something. Do we eat here or there? Do we go on vacation at this place or that place? Do we go the toll road or do we go the bypass, right? There was this idea of which way should we turn. And she just said this week again to me, she goes, I love your father because he can design a plan and knows where he's going. Can I tell you a secret? She's not watching today. She had to be somewhere else today. My plans are not always perfect. 
my plans don't always work out. My efforts at planning sometimes fatigue me. But can I tell you about the plan of God? It is perfect. Can I tell you about who my God is? He he is the all-knowing, all-wise God. He is the all-powerful God. He he is the God ever-present in my life and in his church. He has a perfect plan, and he is so powerful, it will be perfectly accomplished. Now, if you're going through trials today, that's a comfort for you, isn't it? Your heart sings, yes, this is my God. Look at verse 10. Here's a third thing related to God making the church his priority. It's the manifold wisdom of God. That word manifold is one of my favorite words in the Bible. Uh, One translation, an old English translation, says the variegated wisdom of God. Do you know what variegated is? Not a clue. Multifaceted. I I remember when I was in England, I I went to Blenheim Palace. Remember Blenheim Blenheim Palace? Uh, Duke of Marlborough lives there. Great historical story about how he rides the flag to the British Queen every year and has to do this in order to retain uh, the property and home that he has. Uh, Winston Churchill was actually born in this home. Fascinating story. Uh, I won't tell all those details today, but um, I was touring Blenheim Palace when I was over speaking at Oxford University. It's there in Oxfordshire is where it's located. And as I was taking this tour, the tour guide... um, said, look at the tapestry on the wall. It's the most interesting and variegated tapestry in all the palace. She had my attention. And she told how many knots there were on the back of it, and I forget all the details. But like a Tennessee redneck, I went over there, and sorry to all the Tennessee rednecks. I grew up on a farm in East Tennessee. So I, I pulled it back, and you know, about the time I reached for it, she, she does a backflip over to me and absolutely flips out that I'm touching you know, this priceless, beautiful rug. But I look on the back, and I go, man, there are a lot of knots in that rug. Not exactly eloquent English nor descriptive of such an um, intricate work. But, but here's how it is. From the earthly side of things, church, it's not always pretty and sometimes it's naughty. But from the heaven side of things, God is working his perfect plan. And he is weaving it into the world's most elegant and beautiful tapestry. One that will be hung on the walls of heaven for all of eternity to demonstrate what Paul said in Romans eleven thirty three, oh, the depths of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable are his ways. Can you say that about your journey with God today? Look at the final word. His eternal purpose, verse 11 says... The church is the will of God. It is the will of God. It is His eternal purpose. Like a great drama under the direction of God, 
For millennia, he has been telling this story with history being the theater, the world being the stage, church members being the actors. Act by act, the story untolds and the spectators can gaze upon the work of God. You see, God prioritized his church, didn't he? Can I tell you what Paul did with this? Paul prioritized his church too. Look at the language. Go back to chapter 3, verse 1 for just a moment. Notice what Paul says about himself when it comes to the work of this church that he is called to preach to. He he says in verse 1, I am a slave, a prisoner. I have self-declared that I am going to imprison myself to this grand work of God. I I am, look at verse 2, a steward of this thing called the church. I am going to steward God's grace. It is a trust given to me. And think of all the sermons preached. Think of all the prayers prayed. Think of all the tears that were cried. Think of all the visits that were made. Think of all the gospel presentations. Think of all the classes in discipleship. Think of all that he did to steward this fledgling church in Ephesus to try to bring it along so that they captured this great eschatological vision of what God was accomplishing. And then look at verse 7 of chapter 3. And it says that he was a minister. He was a minister laboring, working. You see, here was Paul's attitude. He was overwhelmed by the privilege and the responsibility that was given to him when he was called to work with the church at Ephesus. Is that your attitude? Is that your heart? A humble servant? A willing prisoner? A faithful steward? You you see, here's here's what um, you've got to step back and ask yourself. And let me say, we'll we'll not get to the other four points today, and I'm going to blame it on you when I talk to my friends. I'm going to tell them you all listened too slow, and I couldn't say everything that I (laughs) wanted to say. If you want to hear the rest of it, you'll have to have me back, all right? I can't preach it in the second service. Oh, got your attention there. It's for all the people that were asleep. You can't look at all of this without stepping back and asking yourself the question, what does it mean for me to make the church a priority? What does it mean for me to make the church a priority? And and can I tell you, the temptation is just to skim along the surface. And, and, you know, just skimming along the surface, you'd step back, and you you could probably make as good a list as I could. For most people who've been around church for more than a year, you'd say things like, well, get to church and be a part of regular worship. Find a place to serve. Get involved in the activities of the church. When the offering plates are passed, give. When there's special needs in the church, whether it's the roof or the carpet or the lights or some structural or 
land-related challenge that doesn't seem real cool or exciting. No, no, no. You participate and you do it gladly without complaining. You get involved in meaningful relationships. You welcome new people when they come. You seek them out. You love one another and care for the saints. And you seek to encourage the church to be on mission. Can I tell you, that's just scratching the surface of it. Right? That's just the basic stuff. Down in the meat of it is the heart of it. It's it's the heart of it. Because it's there where you find the culture of the church. And what's happening at the cultural level of the church will determine how effective the church is in living out the mission of the church. And will determine whether or not the lampstand is replaced. It'll determine how bright the light shines. It'll determine how much of the glory of God falls. I was listening to a book on culture on the way out here. I I had time to listen to all 26 hours yesterday while I was traveling. Long trip. Um, They were telling the story of the CEO of uh, Zappos. How many of you have ever bought a pair of shoes on Zappos.com? Anybody? A few Rockport wares in the room today. I love Zappos. Discount shoes shipped straight to your front door. You never have to go try them on. It's really a great thing. The CEO's last name is Shea. He lives in Las Vegas in a trailer park. He's a billionaire. He lives in a trailer park. He lives in an Airstream in Las Vegas. And he said, it's amazing how fully alive you feel when you're living out there in the world's largest living room. You know, he's not concerned with the profits of Zappos now even that Amazon has bought them. Can I tell you what he says he's concerned about? It's the culture. It's the atmosphere. You know, culture is something really hard to define for a church, isn't it? It's like the air. How many of you walked in the room and thought about breathing while you were in the worship center? Not many people have to think that way. There are a few who may be on an oxygen tank and you had to think that way. But most of us didn't. And the culture of Hoffmantown Church is just like that. You just walk into it every day and you are a part of the culture without knowing what culture is being projected. But take a first-time guest walking in the door for the very first time and ask them who you are. There are interesting responses that come. You see, when you dig beneath the surface on the priorities of the church, what you got to get to is the heart of who the church is. And if the heart of the church isn't after God, like David was a man after God's own heart, doesn't mean that he was in the likeness of God's own heart so much as it means that he was pursuing the heart of God, saying, as the deer longs for water, so my soul longs for you. Is that the way you came to church today? If you didn't, you didn't get everything out of church today that God wanted you to get. And guess what? If the Lord is patient in His coming, you'll have another opportunity, by God's grace, to walk in here again and to see with spiritual eyes what David read that Isaiah saw When he came in 
to see the high and holy lifted up Jesus up on the throne. You say, well, was that really Jesus on the throne that he saw? John 12, 41 says that it was. That what Isaiah saw was the pre-incarnate glory of Christ that God wants to send to his church. That's what God wants for Hoffman Town. That's what he wants for you. But here's what it's going to take. It's going to take you and you and the one in the back that no, you didn't want anybody else to see you, but I'm pointing you out right now, you and you and you and you and you with a heart that seeks after God. And when you need God more than you need your next breath, when you need God more than you need food or water, when you need God more than you need a roof over your head, when you need God more than you need anything else that's on your wish list, that is the point and the place where the glory of the Lord begins to rise and the lampstand burns bright. And when you seek first the kingdom of heaven, all these other things will be added to you. You know the most devastating thing in most people's life is that they think that if they don't seek great things for themselves, they'll not get them. When the Bible turns that whole thing upside down. And he says, seek first the kingdom of heaven. And here's my promise and my testimony, personal testimony to you. If you will seek the things of God first and foremost, more than anything else. All those other things that you're worried about will be added unto you.